Well, a very good morning to you, church family. Um, we're going to make a start. It's just gone 10 o'clock. Um, and so uh, we're going to start the service with a call to worship. And a call to worship from a place in Scripture that we don't usually look to for the call to worship necessarily, maybe more a doxology. But in any event, we're going to be reading from Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in, G in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In a meeting this past week, I was reminded that God is able, not only able, but far more able and far more abundantly able than we could ever ask or think. As a church, we don't have to go far to see God's power seen in creation, seen in his judgments, seen in his converting of sinners, you and I, and even in working when we are unable to do anything. This is the same God who we gather to worship here today, the same God who was and who is and who is to come, the God who sent his son Jesus to the world that whilst you and I were opposed to him in our sinfulness, he sent Jesus, born to a virgin in a lowly bed feeding as a, as a feeding trough, the king of hosts on a humble donkey riding into Jerusalem to death on a cross, a robber's death, an open tomb as our victory cry. This is our God. Let's stand together. Let's sing. We will trust God's word alone where his birth Second birth, we will stand. 
Christ alone, on your healing cornerstone, nations rage and devils roar, still he reigns forevermore. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you here uh, at the second service. Uh, we had a bit of a bumpy start to the first service with no power and blown fuses and no aircon. So you really, guys, you have it easy at the second service. But I trust that you've come just as eagerly expecting to worship God as, as we were at the first service, as we came to uh, honor God for who He is. What a privilege to be here today to be able to worship our, our Lord and our King as the call to worship has just reminded us. Uh, of that. Welcome to any visitors who are here for the very first time today. I trust that you'll feel at home amongst us here at, at Honey Ridge. There is a visitor's table in the foyer. Please do uh, just leave us your contact details if you wouldn't mind and take a visitor's pack. We'd love to get in touch with you during the course of the week. Uh, and just if you are a regular second service attendee, that's for everyone, uh, try and come if you can a half an hour earlier around half past nine and join with the first service people who leave uh, for a time of tea and fellowship between the service. We really do want to foster the reality that we are one church, even though we meet in two services and, and the time between the services gives us a wonderful opportunity to just get to know each other better. A couple of announcements for this morning. Uh, firstly, just an announcement regarding Tandanani. Uh, you will know that Tandanani House of Refuge is the orphanage in Zanspreit that we as a church have partnered with for many years. Uh, last year, the church made a decision to purchase a new home uh, in Rand Park Ridge for Tandanani Orphanage. Uh, and, and the work has begun to start making some changes to the property and to get it ready for the children to move. And so outside today, there is a table and a board where each of the rooms in the new house uh, is a photo with a list of things that need to be done. It may be a coat of paint, it may be new curtain rails, it may be curtains or some furniture that's required. Uh, and we are asking 
perhaps small groups uh, in the church to perhaps adopt a room, or maybe you as a family would like to adopt a room or partner with others uh, and just try and do what we can practically to renovate the house uh, as quickly and as affordably as possible. So please do stop past the table afterwards and have a look at what you can help with there. Um, The work will probably start towards the end of March. Um, but a, a day can be arranged uh, if you'd like to go and visit the house and just see and understand a little bit more about how you can get involved. So please do pop past the table after the service. Then another important announcement is regarding security. We have instructed the security company that works for us here at the church to close the main gate on a Sunday five minutes after uh, the services have begun. Um, and that is really for your protection and safety. Uh, And so if you do, for whatever reason, need to leave during the service or you need to leave early, um, we've asked the guards to stop you at the gate to just make sure that it's your car before they let you out. So please, we need your support in that. Um, They do not know every single driver's face and car and that you fit with your car. So they may ask you to just turn the ignition off and turn it back on again. Please would you just help us in that uh, to create a safe environment for us and our vehicles on a Sunday. Then the New Horizons Men's Ministry is having their next uh, meeting on the 3rd of March. That's a Friday morning. It's a breakfast at the church in Bible Land 2 at 8.30. This is for men who are approaching retirement or who are retired. Uh, And so it's a wonderful opportunity for, for men to come and be encouraged in how to use your retirement time well for the glory of God. And so please, would you sign up at the info desk, uh, particularly for this next meeting. And then we continue to have regular needs in terms of our door steward teams and in terms of people that help with the setting up and setting down of communion on our communion Sundays. And so if you're able to serve the Lord in that way, either practically uh, door duty or in communions, please sign up as well at the info desk. You'll be put on a roster uh, and that would be a great blessing to us as a church. And then lastly, to just remind you that we gather again this evening uh, for our six o'clock service to end the Lord's day again in worship of the Lord and around his word as we continue our series in the book of uh, Genesis in the life of Joseph. So please do join us again this evening for that. I could ask the stewards if they would come to the front as we uh, just pray for the tithes and offerings for the Lord's work. Thank you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this new day. We thank you again for the reminder in this past week through the rain that you've sent that you are a God who cares about us uh, and our particular needs as individuals. You cause the sun to shine and the rain to fall and you provide all that we need as your people. Uh, We recognize, Lord, that you cause these things to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous because you are a God of grace and love over all that you have made But particularly for us as your people, you have blessed us with the ability to to work and to earn a living and to participate in the work of the kingdom through our tithes and our offerings. And so we thank you for this opportunity in just a very practical way as stewards to bring back to you a portion of that which you've given to us. And we do pray, Lord, that this would be used wisely for the extension of your kingdom, that you would continue to give us as a church many opportunities for the gospel and for making Jesus Christ known here in Johannesburg and across the earth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
As we etch our way closer to Easter time, um, we undoubtedly will have on our, in our conversations, on our mouths, as we reflect in scripture, as we even pray, we'll be able to see this word Hosanna uh, come up more and more regularly as we, as we get closer to Easter. And this English word Hosanna comes from the Greek word Hosanna, which comes from a Hebrew phrase, Hoishna. And that Hebrew phrase is found in one solitary place in the whole of the Old Testament, and that is Psalm 118, verse 25, where it means, save, please. It's a cry out to God for help. Psalm 118, verse 25 reads, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That sound like Jerusalem calling out to Christ as he rides in on a donkey over the laid palm trees, palm leaves? Surely as we hear this, our minds flick through scripture um, to that which we've committed in our own hearts, to him who saves, in Christ Jesus who redeems our Messiah, the one who saves us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Let's stand together and let's sing.
Won't you bow your hearts with mine as we come before the Lord in prayer?
our loving and heavenly Father, throughout all the seasons of our lives, let us truly say, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, we have hope eternal. Draw us near to you, Father, through the completed work of Jesus Christ that reconciles us and the inworking of your Spirit in our lives and grow our understanding of your word, our love for your word. Bind your word to our hearts and help us ready ourselves with the truth of your word and the hope that we have in you as our witness. Father, by your word you have said that if your people, which are called by your name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, then you will hear from heaven, you will forgive their sin, and you will hear their land, heal their land. And so we cry out, O Lord, for our land. And hear our plea, the plea of our hearts as we bow and forgive us of our sin and restore this earth of its brokenness, we pray. Restore our country of its brokenness, of corruption and of of its power complexities, of its sinfulness. We're people who have much to be prayerful about. And as we consider those who are ill and grieving amongst us, and as we consider the upcoming activities of Easter, we just want to commit all of it before you in prayer. This next season that we come to as a church, and as we prepare ourselves for it as well, presents a great opportunity to bring your word to many who might hear. And as we consider the activity of this body here at Honey Ridge, we commit ourselves to your loving care, to your guiding hand, and to your promise of building your church. Be glorified in our going, and may your presence among us in all things be known. May your presence in Thailand and amongst the believers there be known too, especially as we consider them this month as our mission's focus. Give them strength for their going and endurance for their road. And Lord, we pray that you would keep this church faithful to the focus of missions here in our city as well as across the lands. And hear our prayers for the sake of your glory, Lord. So Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts with a readiness to hear your word this morning as Clinton opens it up to us today. And help us as a church, as your people, to respond with faithfulness to the word of God, we pray. Draw us nearer to you, Father, for we pray all these things in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to stand and sing before we come um, and hear the word. So stand with us. Yeah. 
and Ben and Amy, if they would come to the front here and just join with Grant. And if I could ask if there are any elders here in the service this morning, if you would also just not please join me uh, up front um, as we just take this opportunity to commit Grant and Cornelia to the Lord in prayer.
Some of you, I'm sure, do know, and many of you, other, many others, might not know that uh, today is is Grant and Cornelia's last Sunday uh, with us uh, as they head down to Cape Town uh, this coming week. Uh, Grant has been transferred with his company down to their Cape Town, one of their Cape Town branches, and. Um, they will be joining up with uh, Dave and Michaela Burkholz, the Tableview Baptist Church, uh, once they settle down there. And so we just want to be able to take leave of them this morning uh, and to be able to pray for them. Uh, I do have a letter which I normally give to those who are leaving us, which I'll give to them in a moment, but I don't normally read it. Uh, but it is a letter that is on behalf of the church, and so I just want to uh, share a couple of things uh, with you as we say goodbye to Grant and Cornelia. So Grant and Cornelia, sometimes these farewell letters are hard to write um, because it's very difficult to find something to say about the person's contribution to the Lord's work here at Honeyridge. And I'm doing this all twice, so forgive me, but um, in your case, this letter is hard to write because of how much you have both been so incredibly used by the Lord um, as you've served Him here in this church you have been such a blessing to the body of Christ at Honey Ridge for many years. How many is many? 14, 14 years. Uh, and we could never be able to thank you sufficiently for all your service. But the Lord knows it all, and uh, His eternal reward is unfailing. Grant your giftedness in the music ministry, and leading us in our worship of God has been such a blessing. Uh, Grant mentioned to me this morning, this is the 100th Sunday that he's been leading uh, the people of God here, and we've been so greatly blessed by your love for the Lord and your leading us in our worship of God, so thank you for that. Your contribution on the eldership has been invaluable in keeping the people of God here spiritually cared for, and only God knows how many souls have been eternally impacted by your passion for evangelism your faithful shepherding and teaching of your small group members and your personal discipleship with so many over these years. Likewise, Cornelia, your service to the Lord with your ladies' Bible study, the personal road that you've walked with so many, particularly young ladies in this church, your serving in the heart-to-heart -heart ministry. Uh, you've supported your husband faithfully uh, in the great responsibilities that he's had in the church and you've continued to be such a blessing to your own children and family. Both of you, your practical and deep spiritual love for the young adults and the young families in this church, it's been an example, an example to us of what it looks like to truly care for one another. Your marriage and your family has truly been an example as you've shown us what it looks like to put Christ first uh, in your marriage and in your home, and we want to thank you for that. Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you as a couple, as a family, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. 
And so, yes, although it is with great sadness that we take leave of you as a church, we do rejoice with you in God's faithfulness to you, his leading and guiding of you, knowing not only that he has prepared a place for you in Cape Town, but we know where that place is, and we're going to check up on you regularly uh, to make sure that you are more fruitful there uh, than you have been here. Uh, We really do believe that God has moved you on to continue serving him uh, in, the, in the local church there. And so we do pray now that God's richest blessing uh, would be upon you, that he would go with you and before you as a family. Ben and Amy, we long to hear how God is working in your lives, that you're going to make new friends in the church there, uh, and that as a family, uh, one day, I tell you what, I'll make you a promise, a public promise, One day when the Lord Jesus saves your hearts and you are baptized, then you send me a message and I'll come and I'll be there for your baptismal service. Okay. All right. That's a deal. Okay. Okay. So the Lord's wonderful blessing in numbers is only appropriate at this point. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, and we will pray now uh, for that. But before we do, Grant, I think you just wanted to say a few words. Thank you, Clinton, and and thank you to our church family, to brothers and sisters who have uh, walked this road with us. This has sincerely been our spiritual home. This is a place where we got, where I was baptized, and and where we grew up as a a young couple. Um, The place we got engaged and married, the place where we raised our family um, in the place we dedicated our family to our children to. So we want to thank you for your partnership. Um, we want to encourage you as well that as Honey Ridge already is that, that hill, that city on a hill, the shining light that cannot be extinguished and that all the work that this church is doing, that the Lord would go before each one of you in the practical ways that you are bringing the gospel and that the Lord is working in this place. May what you guys have done in our lives be multiplied um, in the lives of, of many who join this church now and in the future. And so thank you. I'll ask the elders if they would just join with us as we pray for Grant. Let's bow our heads together as we commit them to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, on a day like today, um, We have to start by thanking you for the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the church is the bride of Christ that brings us together as a new family. Each person here, Lord, comes from another family, but we are one family united in the Lord Jesus Christ to be brothers and sisters that will last into eternity. And we give you thanks for that. We want to thank you today particularly, Lord, for Grant and Cornelia and for Ben and Amy, for bringing this family to this church, for bringing children into their lives, and for the incredible blessing that they have been to us over the years that they have been part of this church. We thank you for every friendship that they have formed, every cup of tea and coffee and cycle ride and walk and time spent investing into the lives of your children here at Honey Ridge. We thank you for those that have invested into their lives that as they leave now, they too can continue to be a fruitful tree that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And so we thank you, Lord God, for the enrichment of this church through your blessings and your gifts to Grant and Cornelia. 
We pray, Lord, for them as they move to Cape Town, that you would go before them this week as the move happens, as they travel all that way down to Cape Town, that you would keep them safe, that you would go before them. We pray for their settling in at the Table View Baptist Church. We thank you for Dave and Michaela and every memory of them and their service of you here at Honeyridge. And we pray that uh, as Grant and Cornelia go, they will be a great blessing and encouragement to the church there that you would continue to use them as you've used them here, uh, and that you will grant them a, a fresh and a new season of great fruitfulness in the body of Christ there. We pray for Cornelia, Lord, as she settles into establishing a new home, uh, as she provides an environment for Ben and Amy to grow up in. Uh, we pray that you would continue to bless her, uh, that her home would know the wonderful aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that they do. And we pray, Lord, as, as Grant settles into his new work, uh, that you would also use him there, that he would be a man of honor and integrity and would stand firm for you as you move him to this new opportunity that you have for him there. Lord, we do want to pray that as a family they would continue to know your blessing. We thank you today, Lord, most especially for our Lord Jesus Christ who unites us in him and as Grant and Cornelia are united in him and as we have been united to them in this body, we pray that we will continue to find in Jesus Christ all our hope and our comfort and our joy. We pray, Lord Jesus, that this is your church and that the, the gaps that Grant and Cornelia will leave here at Honeyridge, that you will already be raising up men and women who will fill those gaps as they continue to serve the body of Christ here. We look forward to hearing of how you will bless them down in Cape Town. And so we ask now that you would continue to go before them. Uh, we pray that they would continue to know your good work in their lives as they continue to serve you faithfully. And may your peace and your blessing go with them, for we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, Grant, you're not done yet. You've got one more service tonight at 6 p.m., so uh, faithful to the very end. Uh, appreciate that. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14 uh, this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to read the chapter. It's uh, quite an intriguing story uh, as we continue to follow uh, the account in the life of David, and so please read with me from 2 Samuel chapter 14, reading from verse 1. Joab, uh, that's the commander of David's army. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. 
And they quarreled with one another in the field, and there was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be, my, be, be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king, and it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant, Joab, did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king, and Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. And there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, named after his sister. She was a beautiful woman, 
And so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Job went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. And so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Just uh, so far in God's word today, and Grant has already prayed that the Lord would speak to us through his word Last week, if you were here, our sermon on 2 Samuel 13, which I entitled, uh, Where Are the Godly Men?, uh, gave us not only a very sobering view of the, the spiritual context of decay, which was prevalent in the time of David, but one which was also a very shiny mirror uh, of the context of moral and spiritual decline, which we find ourselves in, in 2023. And someone said to me during the course of the week, Clinton, I hope you won't be focusing on sin again this Sunday. Well, I'm sorry to, to say that if you want a sermon which does not in some way involve the sinfulness of sin and its devastating effects on our lives, we would basically be limited to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because from Genesis 3 onwards... The storyline of the whole Bible is one long account of the effects of Adam's fall into sin. What that brings about in our own hearts as individuals, what that does in terms of the brokenness of our world. But, and here's a very big but, at the same time, the whole storyline of the Bible is also one long account of God's incredible love for and grace towards sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the Bible's teaching on sin, there is no place for good news. And so, yes, I understand coming face to face with our sin, it's never pleasant. Coming to terms with the brokenness of the world in which we live is hard. Nevertheless, this creates the constant reminder in our hearts of our need for the gospel so that we will be driven ever more to Jesus Christ for his mercy and help and encouragement every day of our lives. Just before we come to this text, I also need to express a pastoral concern which arose out of last week's message, which is that a good number of people said to me last Sunday and during the week that they had never in their lives before read the story of Amnon and Tamar from 2 Samuel 13. I'm sure there may be others of you who never said that to me, but who are in the same boat, maybe if you're honest, you've never read today's account either. I think the reason is that for many Christians, we just don't read the Bible. As I mentioned last week, the stories of Amnon and Tamar, even this kind of story today, it never makes it into the Sunday school lesson plans. And certainly these are not the kind of chapters that your typical daily devotion books will ever go to for a nice motivational thought for the day. And I doubt your phone's Bible app will cause one of these verses to pop up as the verse of the day. 
And so we should not be surprised then to find ourselves living in a world where the contents of these chapters and the destruction of these chapters is so prevalent today. I think what worries me on top of the the general lack of reading the Bible is the degree then to which so many Christians are hooked onto all kinds of other Christian media. Podcasts, Twitter feeds, YouTube videos, blogs, DSTV channels, and are so quick to tell you what they've learned about this or that latest fad or trend uh, or end time prophecy or spiritual discovery. But when you scratch just a little bit, you realize there is very little discernment regarding any of these things because they never read their Bibles. So I'm not saying things like devotional books and and podcasts and, and blogs and things can't be of help to us in the Christian life. Of course they can if used appropriately with wisdom but they are at best meant to supplement our daily reading of God's Word. Reading which over the course of a year or two repeatedly takes us again and again through the whole of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, so that the servant of God, as we read it and trained by it and rebuked by it and corrected by it, will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 119, how can a young person stay the path of purity by living according to your word? The psalmist says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let my commands stray, your commands stray from me. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to the Lord. Teach me your decrees. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now we have more access to the word of God than any generation in all of history. That's a fact. And yet we are rapidly becoming the most theologically illiterate generation of Christians ever. Because we do not devote even 30 minutes a day to the reading of God's word. God gives us 24 hours in a day, every day. That's 1,440 minutes. So is it really too much that God would expect you to spend just 2% of your daily allowance of minutes in reading his word to hear what he's wanting to say to you? 30 minutes is just 2% of your day. So can I break this down for you? The average length of a chapter in the Bible is around 1,350 words. The average reading speed of a typical adult is between 200, if you're a slow reader, and 300 words per minute. So in 30 minutes, even if you're a slow reader, you should be able to read about 6,000 words. That's already more than four chapters of the Bible a day. Now, if you read four chapters a day, you will get through the whole of the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, and the Psalms and the Proverbs twice. All in a year and all for just 2% of your daily allowance of minutes. So if you want to know, well, where can I start 
Uh, in the foyer, there's two music stands, and there's a whole bunch of daily reading plans. This is the Murray McShane reading plan. There are others, but you guessed it. If you take one of these, there are four chapters a day. Four chapters a day, which will guide you through the reading of all of Scripture in the course of a year. Don't worry about the fact that we are already in, in February. Just start on January the 1st. Read your four chapters and tick it off and move your way through. And when you get to the end of the year, just go back to the beginning and tick it in the other direction and you just keep on going for the rest of your life. And then, yes, add to that if you want your Bible verse of the day or daily reading plans or blogs or videos in the car, whatever, not videos in the car, but blogs in the car, um, podcasts in the car, whatever it is, add that to a daily dose of God's word. Uh, and let's pray that God would continue to grow us as his people in our knowledge of him through his word. So now my sermon starts, only now, okay. Let's come to this portion of God's Word, 2 Samuel 14, and I've entitled the message today, When Feelings Clash with Conscience, because what we see in this passage today is a manipulating of King David's feelings in order to get him to act against the commands of God. So when I refer to the conscience here, I'm, I'm referring to God's law that's been written on our hearts, I'm referring to our hearts and our minds as they are taught and trained from the scriptures as to what pleases God uh, for us who know what is right and proper and true. We, we know that as we study God's word. Yes, I also realize that our consciences can be silenced. Uh, our consciences can become desensitized through repetitive sin and disobedience and become hardened. I'm not dealing so much with that this morning. My focus today is on the conscience of God as it is designed to function in our lives as the moral compass for the daily decisions we make all the time, a conscience which is informed by and enlightened by the truths and the principles of God's word. Now I'm sure that you realize that every single day, multiple times a day, your feelings are going to clash with your conscience. It starts first thing in the morning when your alarm goes off. Actually, it starts the night before when you decide what time to set your alarm for the next morning. Will you set it for as late as possible so that you can kind of roll out of bed and get to school or work just in time to avoid getting into trouble? Or will you set it for 30 minutes earlier so that you can give the, the first, the freshest 2% of your day to the reading of God's Word? But from the moment that your alarm goes off until the moment you go back to sleep at night, you are faced with multiple decisions where your feelings will clash with what you know to be good and right and true. That which is either sinful or lazy or unproductive, clashing with that which is healthy and fruitful and brings glory to God. This chapter 14 of 2 Samuel is a chapter which reveals how easily we compromise on what we know to be God's commands and His will in our life because our hearts, our feelings, our emotions, they get the upper hand. And when that happens, we end up compromising on obedience to God's ways. And so we're going to work through this chapter to see what I'm calling the tactics of compromise. The tactics of compromise which are deployed against David. 
Now, some of these tactics come from outside as Joab and this woman from Tekoa and Absalom manipulate David. And some of these tactics arise from within David's own heart, but they all work together to cause David to compromise. And although there are at least seven tactics at play in this account, I hope that you will make the connection to even just one this morning or two because we don't need all seven to fall into place before we compromise. Sometimes it only takes one and our feelings win the battle over what God commands. And so in the first tactic I want us to see, the first tactic of compromise this morning is the cry for compassion. Uh, And we see that in verses one to seven. You'll remember from last week that Absalom plotted and then executed the murder of his brother Amnon. And Absalom knew that God's law demanded that as punishment for murder, he had to be executed. And so he, we end chapter 13 with him fleeing off to his grandfather in Geshur, where Israel did not have jurisdiction. The chapter ends telling us that although David mourned for Amnon, his heart longed to go to Absalom. It's now three years later, and chapter 14 begins in the exact same place, with David longing for Absalom. His heart longed to be restored to Absalom, but he could not, for Absalom was a convicted murderer, who, if he set foot back in Israel, would need to stand trial and would be sentenced to death. And so the story starts with this clash between the feelings of David the father and the conscience of David the king. David the father loved his son. He longed to be restored to his son. But the king David had a responsibility before God and the people of God to bring justice for the murder of Amnon. Now we really aren't told And so there's no point in speculating why Joab comes up with this deceptive scheme to get Absalom back. But what he does is so clever. He devises this, this scheme to enlist the brilliant skills of an actress from Israel's Hollywood uh, called a place called Tekoa. And we are told that this lady, and I think this often throws us off if you have read this chapter, It starts by telling us that this lady was a wise woman. But that is the exact same word used in the previous chapter to describe Jonadab as crafty. And so in the context, as the story unfolds, we see that crafty or cunning is a far better translation to describe this woman. The word wise in Hebrew can either mean wise positively if it leads in God's ways or crafty or cunning if it leads away. And the context makes it clear which one this is. Job tells the woman his scheme, how to dress, how to act. He even writes the script for her encounter with David, and then she's left to simply work her actress magic on King David. This is probably inspired by Joab remembering how the prophet Nathan had previously used a parable The parable of that man who had one little lamb and how in the telling of that parable it brought David to his senses so that he would acknowledge his terrible sin in the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so he deploys the same tactic here, except this time not by way of a parable, uh, but by way of a live drama performance before the audience of the king. William Blakey puts it so well. 
He says, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings. The woman of Tekoa's drama to rouse his feelings against his conscience. Very similar act, but very different place that they were coming from. So the widow arrives before David, appearing as if she'd been mourning for a long time, and she appeals to David's sense of compassion. Compassion for her and her desperate, albeit fake, circumstances. She, she tells David that her husband's died and her two sons were, were quarreling in the field and the one kind of accidentally killed the other and now her family has risen up against this poor son so that he can be put to death for his crime and if that happens, she will have no one to look after her and this will destroy the legacy of her husband's name. Whose heart does not go out to this woman? What a terrible situation. Surely David's heart of compassion would be aroused by this story. And it certainly was. In this moment, the woman was appealing to David's feelings, despite the fact that God's word speaks very clearly, very specifically about the exact circumstances of this woman. About how God has made provision for both the widow as well as someone who commits manslaughter. You can read Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 24. So instead of David responding immediately with, with what God had revealed concerning this situation, we see that David's journey of compromise begins with her cry for compassion. The second tactic in the story is seen in the cloak of spirituality uh, in verses 8 to 11. Now we need to remember that the devil is a master tactician. He, he knows that one of the easiest ways he can get us to sin is if he can cloak his deception in a thin veneer of spirituality, a thin veil of religiosity. So David, we are told in verse 8, sends the woman away and says he will make a ruling concerning her. It was a settled matter. But she needs more assurance that his feelings will triumph over his conscience. And so she steps it up a notch by throwing in all the religious jargon that she can muster. Look at verse 9. Oh, my Lord, the king, let the guilt of my son be on me and on my father's house. And may you, O king, be guiltless in this. It all sounds so righteous, doesn't it? All the right religious language. But then she really kind of goes for the jugular in verse 11. She says, and don't just give me your word. Invoke the Lord your God. Swear by God himself that my son will be safe. And immediately we see that David falls for her superficial and fake religious mumbo jumbo as he then swears an oath. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Who does David think he is to be able to make such a proclamation? David has already fallen here for two of the tactics of compromise. Now in the third place, we see the confusion of misdirection in verses 12 to 16. As a general principle, when we start to deviate from the clear teaching and instruction of God's word, we open ourselves up to confusion. And in particular, this kind of confusion of misdirection. 
It's exactly what the woman does next. But before we read these verses, just remember this is all a charade. It's all fake. This woman is a brilliant actress. She's not a widow. She doesn't have a son. There's no family members wanting to, to take his life. It's, it's all an elaborate scheme to get David to go against his principles, against the clear commands of God in this matter regarding Absalom. Now that she's hooked him with her cry for compassion and her cloak of spirituality, she pounces on David with the confusion of misdirection. Just watch as we read these verses how crafty this woman is and how David is like a confused deer in a headlamp. Verse 12, Then the woman said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this her story, the murder of her son, how have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, what he's just said, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his own banished son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I've come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I'll speak to the king. Perhaps he'll grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who's trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. What has just happened here? This woman has got David exactly where she wants him, functioning in the realm of feelings and emotions and so it does not take much to throw David into utter confusion. First, she pounces on David by saying that he has devised a similar evil scheme against the people of God. Her brilliant acting had got David to set himself against these wicked people or this wicked man who wants to kill her son. And now suddenly she says to him, you are that man. Remember, it's what Nathan did. You are that man, and you are acting against the people of God. Your ruling has convicted you as guilty because you have not restored Absalom. So she struck him with a left hook and then a right blow, and as David is really like staggering here, she turns on all the religious mumbo-jumbo again, saying that although people, yes, must eventually die, you know, this is not what God desires. Rather, he's a God of mercy, he's a God of love, and he always makes a way to restore the banished ones back to himself. Before David can even begin to see through her scheme, expose it for all its faulty logic and her misrepresentation of both God and the truth, she quickly reverts her attention back to herself, away from David and Absalom to, to her and her fake story, appealing again to David's compassion that he will deliver her and her son from the man who's trying to rob them of their inheritance which God has given to them. If only David had spent his 2% in the morning reading the Bible, grounded in God's word, he would have smelt a rat a mile away. But because he had allowed his feelings to get the better of his conscience, and he was so confused at this point, he could not recover from her trap of compromise. But this lady is far from done. Uh, she's loving her acting debut before the king. Uh, maybe her director, Joab, promised her a bonus payout if she could like clinch the deal at the end of the day. 
And so she skillfully deploys her next tactic for compromise, namely the conquest of flattery. Now, there is a glimpse of hope in these verses that David is finally realizing that he's been duped uh, by this woman into making a ruling which actually has got nothing to do with her son, but has everything to do with his son. Because it seems that David does indeed begin to smell a rat. And the rat smells very much like Joab. And so he asks her, is Joab behind all of this? And she admits that indeed he is. Joab orchestrated the whole thing, but she has the audacity to remind David that he has made an oath before God and he may not turn back from his word. How ironic that the woman who has not spoken a single word of truth in this entire chapter is now demanding that the king must keep his word. But what now if she's also exposed? If Job's been exposed, she's been exposed. What if David's anger burns against her in all of this? How's she going to get her bonus payout if David doesn't stick to his ruling? So she pulls out her final and her most powerful tactic to win David over in his path of compromise, and she conquers him with flattery. Look at verse 17. And your servant thought... The word of my Lord the King will set me at rest. For the Lord my King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Again in verse 20. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord David, you have wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. What a load of hogwash. David didn't even have enough wisdom to see what was going on right in front of his eyes, let alone to have the wisdom of the angel of God. Isn't Thomas Brooks spot on when he says, flattery is the devil's invisible net? This crafty woman from Tekoa was a master flatterer, conquering David's resistance with this invisible satanic net. But let's ask ourselves the question this morning, why is flattery so powerful? How did it prove to be so powerful in this instance with David? Well, because as the saying goes, flattery is the art of telling a person exactly what he already thinks about himself. And so we see this feeds directly then into the next tactic of compromise, which is the confidence of independence. Verses 21 to 24. David, we see after all of what has just transpired, he should have pressed pause. He should have realized this is a scam. I've been scammed. He should have phoned Nathan, said, Nathan, come. He should have called his other elders and said, guys, I need wisdom here. But instead he didn't. He acted out of a place of independence. He spoke with confidence in his independence as king because in that moment David truly believed that he had the wisdom of an angel. The flattery of the woman had told David exactly what he thought about himself. And so David did not heed the principles of Scripture in the Proverbs, Proverbs eleven fourteen, which says, where there is no guidance... 
a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, oh, there's safety. Again, Proverbs 24 verse 3 says, by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there's victory. No, instead we see David makes his final ruling in complete independence of the truth of God's word and independently of the wisdom of godly counselors. Look at verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Now we might wonder at this point, why would David have made such a compromising ruling? Yes, we understand that he was kind of led into this by the crafty scheme of Joab and this Tekoa actress. But surely David would not have made a ruling against the clear teaching of God simply because he had been duped by them, especially because he had actually uncovered their scheme. But you see, all along, right from the very beginning of David's story, we have been told that David has a heart problem. He has a problem not only with beautiful women, but a much more general problem. And we see that the text exposes the heart of David's compromise in the sixth place with the charm of beauty. Now, as we were reading through this chapter, verses 25 to 28 seem completely out of place in the flow of the story. It's those verses about the beauty of Absalom. And yet by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's exactly on cue. Compromise is subtle because it begins in the heart. Feelings flow from the heart and David's heart was too easily charmed by beauty. Verse 25 to 28 tells us something which should ring the alarm bells should take us back to something which was said about the failure of King Saul. We are told that there was no one in all of Israel who was more praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Not just his face. The text says from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was perfect. No Photoshop, no blemish filter required. Externally speaking, Absalom was entirely beautiful. Is this perhaps why David longed to be restored to Absalom? Despite the fact that his son was a cold, calculating murderer, was it his external beauty that softened David to ignore the wickedness in Absalom's heart? Well, I mentioned another son of David last week in 1 Kings 1, verse 5, Adonijah, who was also a wicked man, who also set himself up to overthrow David as king. And in that passage, we read that David did nothing to displease or to discipline his son. And the very next verse says, and he also was a very handsome man. So it's clear that as we look at the bigger picture of David's life, that not only was he led into compromise through these various external tactics, but David was ultimately led into compromise because of his own heart, his proud independence, and the seduction of beauty. But there is one final dimension to David's compromise in this chapter, and it's seen in the compulsion 
of urgency or the coercion of urgency. I started with coercion. I've changed it to compulsion because coercion kind of is a bit weak. But compulsion speaks of, of something which places a demand on us. You see, when our hearts are, feeling, are placing feeling over conscience, when the external tactics are, are stacked against us, you can be sure that the final straw which breaks the camel's back will come in this compulsion of urgency. You see, David, although he had compromised in bringing Absalom back to Israel without executing, it does, executing him, it does seem that David was still torn between his love for Absalom as a father and his responsibility towards justice as the king. He, he says that Absalom must remain in his own house and he, he may not be restored to the position of a royal son. But Absalom has bigger dreams for himself. He wants to become king one day. And so eventually after two years, he creates a situation of urgency. Now he did this twice. Firstly, when, when Joab refused to answer his WhatsApp messages. <laughs> Absalom says, no one blue ticks me. And so what does he do? He set his field on fire. That got Job's attention, and yeah, terrorism always gets people's attention. But then we see how Absalom forces David into a finally compromising all the way by creating urgency. Really, he made his situation into a matter of life or death. Look at verse 31. Job arose, went to Absalom at his house, said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said, well, behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to ask the king. Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Job went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So basically, Absalom is sick and tired of living like a normal citizen in Israel. He wants to be fully reinstated. He wants acquittal of all the charges. And so he decides to play the ultimatum card to force David's hand and, and to do so in a very, very clever way. He says to Joab, give me an audience with the king. And if there is guilt in me, let David execute me. I mean, he's as guilty as sin, this man. He murdered his brother. Cold-blooded murder, premeditated murder. But he also knew that his dad loved him. He knew that if David wanted him executed, he would have done so two years ago when he set foot in Israel. And so he creates this ultimatum moment for David. If I'm guilty, let David execute me. Which by implication means, if David does not execute me, then I'm innocent. Clever. And so we see that Job presents the ultimatum to David, who then summons Absalom. There's a little bit more flattery, a little bit more groveling before David, and then he is raised up, and he is kissed by David as a sign of his restoration as a son and as a prince. Just like Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, here David betrays his love for God and his duty as a king with a kiss. So there we have the seven tactics of compromise. Tactics which are just as real 
in our everyday lives in 2023 as they were in David's life 3,000 years ago. Let me just try and sow some seeds here for, for your own reflection on how these same tactics might be at play in your life as you face the daily decisions to put your feelings ahead of the commands of God. Firstly, there's the cry for compassion. And yes, this probably doesn't take the form of the woman of Tekoa, but we hear her voice all the time, don't we? Oh, shame, man. You, you can't be so black and white on gender or sexuality. Everyone needs their own place in the rainbow. What? Give the child a hiding? No, that's so cruel. Surely a God of love would not be pleased with that. Or, you know, shame, man, that's just their personality. They didn't know better. They aren't hurting anybody by what they're doing. Just leave them alone. Shame, man. See, all of these are a cry. They're a cry for compassion. They're stirring the feelings inside of us in the face of things which are clearly taught in God's Word. Oh, and then there's the cloak of spirituality. When we hear or when we say, Oh, the Lord told me. The Lord gave me such peace. You know, I just love Jesus and I want to follow Him. Now, all of that's wonderful if it comes from a heart that is truly submitted to Christ and His, and His Word. But often, the cloak of spirituality is a tactic to try and throw off discernment and accountability. And then there's the confusion of misdirection. This is a strong one in our day and age. When people say things like, well, if God is a God of love, then surely He wants me to be happy. If God is really good, then he would not allow this bad thing in my life. See, the confusion of misdirection is usually a mixture of truth and lies, but it's mixed in such a way as to confuse us into compromise. And then there's the conquest of flattery. Oh man, you are so good at your job. There is just no ways the company can survive without you and your extra 20 hours of overtime without pay every week. Pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. I'm not lying. You deserve so much better than your wife and your children treating you the way they do. Are you so gifted at this or that? I can't believe you're not famous. Conquest of flattery. And that leads then, these are external things, that leads to this inner one, the confidence of independence. Why do I need to ask advice on this? It's my life, it's my money, it's my choice, it's my family, it's my decision. And then there's the charm of beauty. Think of politicians, think of actress, actors, actresses, sports stars, TV personalities, news anchors, even the weather person has to be beautiful these days. Who does not want to be associated with beauty? Cars, home, food, travel, fashion, shoes, phones, jewelry. This is particularly a weakness for our ladies. I've hit the men hard over the last couple of weeks. Pinterest. How many hours a day do you scroll through beautiful things again and again and again? And then... Finally, there's the compulsion of urgency. If you don't do this, if you don't make this decision now, 
If you don't go there now, or come with me now, or take this opportunity now, it's lost, it's over, it's gone. You better decide now. Well, hopefully you're starting to see that David's life and your life are not that different, are they? Every day we face exactly the same decision as David to put our feelings ahead of our conscience, to put the desires of the flesh ahead of the desires of the spirit, to compromise instead of committing to God's commands. We don't have time to explore this. I would maybe encourage the small groups. Every single one of these points on the screen has a plethora of principles and verses which counter each of these tactics in your life. It would be maybe worthwhile to explore these in the weeks ahead so that God will be honored and Jesus will be glorified in your decision making. But yes, a chapter like this, just to go back to the beginning, reminds us that we are living on this side of Genesis 3. Satan's tactics of compromise are woven into our sinful nature. They are around us in the world out there, and unless God intervenes, we will put our feelings ahead of conscience every single time. But there is one verse in this chapter which also reminds us that not only do we live on this side of Genesis 3, but we live on this side, praise God, of the cross. In verse 14, in the middle of all her schemes to get David to compromise, the woman of Tekoa speaks a word which was more true than she or David would ever imagine. A word which the New Testament tells us even angels long to look into. She said in verse 14, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises a means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Through all her scheming, David was duped into a compromise of false restoration with Absalom. This restoration here in this chapter was a restoration which came at the expense of justice. It came at the expense of repentance. It was a restoration which never produced true forgiveness and only resulted in greater destruction in David's family. David's attempt to play God in this chapter fails miserably and reminds us again and again and again that David is not our savior. But God does devise a true way. God does devise a perfect way that banished sinners like you and me will not remain an outcast. God's way that he devised perfectly upholds his justice and his compassion. It perfectly upholds his righteousness and his grace. God's way involved taking the life of King David's greater son, Jesus, and putting him to death, putting him to death so that our sinful, broken, compromising lives, which have been poured out on the ground as dead, can be gathered up again and restored to God in our perfect union with him as royal sons and daughters forever. This is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We are a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If that is not enough motivation to go into this week, putting conscience back above feelings, putting Christ's principles first in everything, then I don't know what is. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning, written 3,000 years ago and yet so relevant to our hearts and our lives, right here in Johannesburg in 2023. Lord, we thank you for these simple truths that we've seen of the tactics of the evil one in our lives that play every single day to cause us to compromise. But we thank you that he no longer has power over us. He no longer is our master to whom we have to obey and respond. He has been conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And with the Lord's resurrection, we too have been raised to newness of life. And so we pray that we would truly be those people who have our hearts transformed by your spirit within us, that you would give us new desires, the desires of the spirit, desires which are contrary to the flesh, and that day by day we would walk in the newness of this life, walk in the spirit whose desires never contradict your commands, whose desires never contradict your principles. We pray, Lord, where our consciences have become hardened or seared or desensitized, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would quicken and awaken and cleanse and wash, that we might be a people again who is holy because you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand as we close the service in a song, a doxology, all glory be to Christ. Should nothing of our efforts and no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive.
心不离。